0: Well, good evening, everyone. I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles out and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, So wonderful to be back again with you tonight. So thankful for your presence. Uh, I know there's a lot of things that are going on in our life, uh, sporting events that are on, and school, and work tomorrow and early to bed and all that kind of stuff, but the fact that we're all here means that we were thinking about important things, spiritual things, and I sure appreciate your presence. Um, I do prepare lessons because I like uh, people to hear them, Uh, so it's nice to have people here, Uh, and I certainly hope that I can be an encouragement to you tonight as you've been an encouragement to me. Appreciate all those, too, who have traveled from other churches. Uh, uh, Certainly good to meet you, and I'm glad glad that you're here to lift up this group. Uh, while you're turned to First Timothy chapter 2, I want to read a, a verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 through 20. You can turn there if you like, but it's here on the screen. Uh, Paul says, "You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body." Um, there are certain areas of morality that will challenge Christians more than others depending on which generation and era and location that we happen to find ourselves living in. And this was certainly true for the Christians that were in the first century. Uh, The Apostle Paul, for example, uh, in his epistles regularly addressed the false gospel that was being pushed by the Judaizing teachers of that era. So he talks about that a lot in his letters because that was something that was a hot topic for that time. Uh, The Apostle John John and his epistles uh, appeared to encourage Christians of that era to resist the errors of Gnosticism. Uh, Even certain ideas pertaining to the resurrection needed to be corrected. Uh, Unity seemed to be a prevailing issue in the first century as a result of the assimilation assimilation between the Jews and Gentiles in local churches. Uh, But now fast forward 2,000 years Uh, and thousands of miles around the globe, uh, we likewise face challenges today that perhaps are different than in other areas that people have lived. Uh, Over in Auburn, uh, where I live, uh, since it's a college community, uh, we regularly encounter things like atheistic thinking, uh, alcohol, materialism, evolution, fornication, and revelry, and so Larry and I find ourselves uh, regularly teaching on these subjects because the more prevailing that they are in that community, the more that they they begin to seep their way into the Lord's body. And so we're trying to counter that, trying to help the members that are there. One of the issues that we have to deal regularly in our day and age, and especially in the college community where uh, I live at, is the subject of modesty. Modesty. Uh, modesty. And what I mean by modesty more specifically, because I understand the idea of modesty is actually a rather broad subject, but what I'm talking about when I say modesty is modest apparel or immodest apparel. Uh, We now find ourselves, do we not, living in a culture of nakedness. I mean, we really do. And there are temptations on the Christian's part to conform to these worldly standards. And I think that this would be a very worthy subject to talk about this evening. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9 and 10 says the following, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Now, there's just something that's really difficult about this topic uh, to submit to, is there not? And, and preachers are scared to preach on it. Uh, 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 we were talking uh, tonight about this, and, and I was asked, you know, what, what are you preaching on tonight? And I said, well, you know, I was trying to figure out a lesson that might get me kicked out of the church and never invited back again, so I thought I might preach on modesty. And, and of course, I was kidding about that. But but you, you know how much of a flamethrower sometimes this, this lesson is. Brethren, can really get put out by something like this. Uh, Listen, we need to talk about this. I'm sorry, but we need to talk about it. And I would suggest that we don't just need to talk about it from the pulpit. This doesn't need to be a one-sided conversation. This needs to be something that we talk about with one another. We need to stop saying, well, we're just going to have to agree to disagree on this subject and actually commit to having conversations regarding this so that not only will we draw closer to God, which is the ultimate thing that we want, but so that we'll draw closer to one another and try to understand one another in the process. But even after we do all that, it's still a difficult subject to talk about. It's a difficult subject for a lot of Christians to submit to, and I think that's the case probably for a variety of reasons. First, I think that there are just a lot of Christians out there that they are just determined that they're going to be rebellious about this subject, and they're going to wear what they want to wear. And if you challenge them on this, they're going to say something like, well, what I wear is between me and the Lord. At least that's what I've been told. Well, look. Whether you pray or not is between you and the Lord, and whether you assemble with the saints or not is between you and the Lord, and whether you lay by and store on the first day of the week is between you and the Lord. The problem with it, though, is if you're not doing it right, it's the Christian's job to tell you about it. And so it's the same thing with modesty, right? We're trying to help. We're not trying to judge. We're not trying to dictate. We're not trying to draw lines and rules where the Bible has not done this. But we are trying to love one another and we're trying to help one another draw closer to God. And that includes me. If I'm not teaching right on this subject, that's what I want from people. I want people to say, well, Ryan, I hear what you're saying, but I think you're, trying to, you're assuming too much in blank. Those are the kind of conversations that we need to be having. But I'm telling you, outside of that, there's just some out there that are going to be rebellious about this. And here's what's kind of interesting about this, is there's a bit of a double standard sometimes, brethren. The same people who say, well, modesty, you know, that's between me and the Lord, they would have no problem whatsoever with uh, others outside the church setting a standard of dress. You know, if you're invited to a wedding, it'd be unheard of to argue with the bride that you ought to be able to wear whatever you want to wear. We wouldn't do this with our employer, would we? And we wouldn't do this uh, w- as far as uh, retailers who set certain standards upon entry to their store. And yet, when Jesus sets a standard for those that he's redeemed, and the church, as his pillar and supporter of the truth, tries to do its best to encourage and enforce this standard, I tell you, some Christians, will, they'll just get put out. And that inconsistency has always bothered me just a bit because there is so much more on the line for us than simply a wedding or a job or a shopping spree. So I think it's tough for that reason, but I think there's also uh, additional difficulty as well because we understand that there's no explicit passage that tells us exactly how short is too short, how tight is too tight, how sheer is too sheer. And so I understand that. If you come up to me after this lesson and say, well, Ryan, there's no passage that tells me inches. I'm not going to argue with you about that. I understand that. And I, and I sometimes I wish, God had given us that, because it might have been a little bit easier. But maybe the fact that he didn't give us that means that he wants us to try to dig and try to uncover a lot of this for ourselves, because I'll tell you, there may not be a passage that says, thou shalt not wear a two-piece bathing suit. But I'll tell you what, if you had worn a two-piece bathing suit around Israel during Bible times, you'd likely have been stoned to death. I understand that specific inches and dimensions aren't specified in the Bible. I understand that. But I'll tell you what, the Bible does not deal with explicitly It does deal with in principle. And I do believe that there is enough evidence in Scripture by which we can glean insight on what is modest versus immodest apparel if we'll simply approach this subject with an honest determination to use some discernment and to try to rightly divide the word of truth so that we can exercise our senses. As Hebrews 5 verse 14 says, we can learn to discern between good and evil. Okay, so it's a tough subject for that reason. I get that. I think it's also tough for some people uh, because there are a lot of young Christians that have just simply not been exposed to teaching on this, and we see that all the time in Auburn. And if churches are not teaching on this subject, and if parents aren't instilling these virtues in their children, well, who else out there is left to teach our children? And we know the answer to that, right? It's, It's the world. Young people will simply be left to dress and look like the world, and they'll define modest clothing as whatever they happen to feel comfortable with wearing. And guys like me, we get up here and we start laying out some principles, and some young lady realizes that a modesty fits about half of her wardrobe, and now a difficult, if not costly, decision needs to be made. I I run into this all the time in in Auburn, uh, just unfortunate biblical ignorance on Bible teaching surrounding this subject, but it does fall on elders, it falls on preachers, and I think more than even those two, it falls on parents to teach on this subject. And another reason I think this is so difficult, and to me I think this is probably one of the bigger ones, at least in what I kind of come across at sometimes, brethren, Um, there does seem to be A strong inclination as a result of the push made by the world for what's considered fashionable for a person to allow their adornment to drive their sense of self-worth. I read an article that estimated that women who are around the age of 25 now, that means they're 25 now, they're going to end up spending in their lifetime about $200,000 on clothing. That's a house, right? Right. Three hundred thousand dollars on their makeup. That's a nice house. Fifty-five thousand dollars on their hair. Why, why, why do this, ladies? Well, so you look good, right? <laughs> why do you want to look good? So others will think you look good. You know, so so young ladies can attract a young man. You, you see how much, how easy it is to allow what we wear and to get our self worth wrapped up into our adornment. And when those things are tied together and someone like myself gets up and starts talking about what you shouldn't wear and your mind starts jumping to certain items of clothing that you like to wear but maybe you shouldn't be wearing but you might be actually wearing in fact right now and you realize you probably shouldn't be doing that but you sure do like wearing it. It sure does make you feel good to wear it. You see why this teaching kind of stirs the pot a little bit. Uh, Brethren, and uh, and I want to say this to ladies in particular, I I do hope that when this lesson is done tonight that you will come away from an understanding that not one sense of your self-worth should be defined by what you wear. You want to find a guy who loves you unconditionally and simply for who you are. I've got good news for you. You already have. He died on the cross for you 2,000 years ago. And there alone should lie your sense of self-worth and the one who bought you with a prize, and he is asking you to glorify him in your body. See, when a woman, when she wants to be in a relationship with a guy, she's going to dress to impress, right? Well, 1 Timothy 2, again in verse 9 and 10, tells us how ladies can impress Jesus Christ. It says again, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, Modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. So, what I want to do tonight is is I actually want to do an expository study on the main words that are used in this text. But before I do that, I want to make some general observations about the text. Um, First and foremost, I, I do think it is important to understand that Paul is specifically addressing women. Now, that's not misogynistic on my part to suggest because Paul does begin verse 9 with the phrase, likewise I want women. Now, as I say that, of course that does not exclude men from an obligation to be modest in their attire. Okay, That absolutely does not exclude them. But it does seem to indicate that the temptations associated with what we should and shouldn't be wearing tend to be more of a problem for women than it does for men. Men likewise have problems that are specific to their gender and their sex, do they not? And Jesus alludes to this in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 28. That doesn't mean that women don't struggle with lust. Uh, Only that men as a gender struggle more. That's a biological fact. Jesus said, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Why does he unfairly target men and women? It's not because he doesn't understand that women don't struggle with this too. Just males predominantly do. And I think that's the idea here in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is that women... Uh, struggle sometimes with, with with modesty. So there's a propensity in man to be visually stimulated by the female figure and Jesus' demands are for men to guard against the temptation to objectify women. A big part of what God is demanding in 1 Timothy 2 though is that women not use clothing to accentuate certain parts of their body and therefore draw undue attention whether it's knowingly or unknowingly and exploit a very well known weakness in men man. But see, then on the other end, God demands that men not objectify women, but instead learn to love them for all the right reasons. And I do want to tell you, ladies, this, if you're feeling uncomfortable and you're like, well, why is he picking on me tonight? I'm going to get the men tomorrow night, I promise you, okay? So just just be patient with me. Tomorrow we're going to talk about men, okay? So I promise you I'm not not being one-sided here. But this is an issue that requires joint effort, does it not? I I recognize that 100%. Uh, I don't want to unfairly target one gender over another, but I do want to be honest with what the text says. Likewise, I want women, watch yourself in this. Men, I want you to watch yourself with this. That's a biological fact. Part of our expressing love towards one another, brethren, as Christians, as those who have been redeemed by Christ, is learning to develop a sensitivity towards one another's weaknesses and determining not to be a stumbling block for one another. That's a biblical fact. Now, the overarching exhortation uh, of this, um, of this uh, 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 passage, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9, uh, is that clothing sends signals, okay? Uh, and that a woman should dress in such a way that proclaims that she is godly and not worldly. A worldly signal might involve dressing so lavishly that you become the envy and the scorn of others, uh, or it could be dressing so sensually to the point that when a man looks at you, his eyes are drawn to parts of your body that he shouldn't be. But the general exhortation that we see in 1 Timothy 2 is, that's not who you are. So you dress in such a way that tells people exactly who you are and what you stand for. And ladies, your clothing does send signals. And whether you intend it to or not, someone is picking up on these signals and affected by it. There's actually a lady spoken about in Proverbs chapter 7 and in verse 10 that was sending signals with her clothing uh, because the text reads in Proverbs 7 and verse 10 that she was in the attire of a harlot. Now, that's not necessarily clothing that says, I am a harlot, but it is clothing that incites sexual interest. But then on the flip side, you've got a verse like Proverbs 31 and verse 25, uh, which every Christian woman should want to be, like this woman, right? The Proverbs 31 woman. But she's clothed with strength and dignity. And I think the question that you have to ask yourself is, which signal do I want to send with my attire? Do I want to send a signal of sexual availability, or do I want to send men a signal of dignity and self-respect? That's what's on the line here. And let's be honest, so much of the clothing put out these days is designed to incite sensuality and lust. And, you know, Hollywood understands this, don't they? Um, I read a quote years ago. It was a, it was a juicy one. I can't remember how I came across uh, it. But uh, the actress, uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt, some of you might have heard this, said this um, about, uh, I guess it was a question if somebody had asked her if she would ever appear you know, nude in a, in a film or something like that. And, and notice what she said. She said, nudity is not something that I feel particularly comfortable with. I also think that it's better not to show everything. I feel like imagination can do way more. Now, how does Hollywood get this? But sometimes Christians don't. How does Hollywood get that you can incite lust more by what you wear than not wearing a thing? Mary Quaint, uh, she was the designer of the miniskirt. She came up with the miniskirt, the whole idea of it. And she said upon designing it, many clothes are symbolic of those women who want to seduce a man. That's why she designed them. That was her purpose. And i got so many quotes like this from people of the world who understand that sexual signals can occur by the certain clothes that you wear. But ladies... Jesus Christ, the man that you are in a relationship with, he wants you to avoid that. To adorn yourself in a way that, that won't be a stumbling block or distraction to anyone, but it will show who has redeemed you. And you become so lost in Christ and his cause that it's your good works that shine through and through and nothing that you wear would ever allow anyone to question what and who you stand for. So with that in mind, um, God does give us a standard uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9, uh, he, he says these words, and these are the words we're going to study now. He says, proper clothing, uh, modestly and discreetly. Um, do, do we know what these words mean? Because I do think that that's very important here, that if God is applying a standard, as it pertains to modest clothing, and we don't know what it is that he's actually saying here, how are we actually going to interpret these words if we don't know what they mean? Well, I think what generally happens when that's the case is inevitably we'll apply whatever meaning that we want, right? And what that means is that modesty then becomes what I make it. It's a standard completely subjective to my opinion, and therefore don't you bind your opinion on mine is what sometimes people say. Well, let me ask this question. When we're trying to help someone understand a concept such as baptism, what is a I mean we have many, you know, t- uh, tools in the toolbox for dealing with baptism, right? But but isn't one of the tools that sometimes we take out to help people with baptism is to go to the Greek word? Sometimes we'll go to the Greek word and baptism we'll say, well, well look, baptism that that's just the Greek word baptismo and if you look that up in a Greek dictionary, that, that means to immerse. We say that all the time, right? We do the same thing with the word church. You know, if you look up the word church in Webster's dictionary, the very first uh, definition it's going to say is that it's a building. But we know that's not the proper definition of the word, at least how the Bible uses it, right? We understand that's the Greek word ekklesia, which means called out of. Ek means out of, Eklesia means called. Called out of, people that are called out, the church, that's us as people, right? Called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Uh, We do the same thing with the word saint. We try to uh, correct our Catholic friends with that, uh, try to tell them that that word just means set apart and that means all Christians. We do this similarly with the word disciple, which simply means a learner, and we make all kinds of applications of that. And all I'm suggesting is that we do these kinds of word studies all the time in the church because we're not interested in what people say these words mean. We want to know what they actually mean. So that would mean that we need to do some the same thing to the proper clothing and modestly and discreetly, do we not? I mean, that, that's my challenge for, for all of us this evening. Let's look and see what these words say now. Let's do it using a Strong's concordance, a Thayer's, a Vine's Greek dictionary. You know, sometimes a Christian will say to me when I propose this, well, I shouldn't have to be a, a Greek scholar to, you know, understand the Bible. You don't have to be a Greek scholar to learn how to use a dictionary, do you? I mean, that's all Thayer's and Vine's and Strong's. That's, that's all they really are, right? And it's the job of men like myself to really do what Nehemiah 8 and verse 8 says, to, to read it and then to give an understanding standing to the reading. That's what guys like me try to do. So what I'm suggesting is that in a culture and society where a word like modesty can mean so many different things to different people, Let's just go to the experts in Greek and see what they say about these words, and see what reasonable conclusions we can actually find, and start thinking about as it pertains to proper clothing modestly and discreetly. That's my challenge for this evening. I don't think it should be that hard. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at four words, make some application, and the lesson is going to be yours. Uh, let's first look at the word clothing. Okay. Now the word clothing. That's how I have it in the New American Standard that I use. Uh, If you're using the English Standard, the King James, or the New King James Version, that word is going to be translated apparel. Now Thayer's uh, says that this word means a lowering, a letting down, a garment let down. That's what the word means. It comes from the Greek word katastelo, which vines tells us means to send or let down, to lower. In fact, the word kata means down, and the word stello means to send. Now that tells us some things, does it not? It implies some things. See, it's absolutely true that the Bible does not give specific lengths. But it's giving us a direction here, isn't it? It's giving us a direction. It doesn't give us inches, but it is defining a trend. See, to send down, that's the opposite of to send up or to make short. This is what the world wants us to do, to reveal more of the thigh, more of the breast, to give more of the attention. The Holy Spirit, using this word, He's asking us to resist that urge. That word, Catastelo, it actually, and, and this is especially true if you study it in its other context, it's actually encouraging restraint. It's encouraging a quieting of the impulses that might lead you to exposing areas of your body that Jesus wouldn't want you to expose. And I think that becomes uh, even more apparent when you see how the word is used in other texts. For example, in Acts chapter 19 and verse 35 and 36, when Demetrius is inciting the mob against Paul and then there's this great commotion going on, uh, this word katastello is actually used twice in these two verses. It says that after quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of Ephesians is a guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? So since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. Those two words that I've got underlined right there, the words quieting and calm, it's the same exact word for clothing in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. You see the connection? This word apparel is something that goes down as opposed to coming up, which in turn should restrain and quiet sensuality as opposed to rousing and inciting sensuality. Again, doesn't give us a starting point. It gives us a general direction. And I don't want to stray too far from First Timothy chapter 2. But the Old Testament does give us some additional clues about maybe where a starting point might be for us to start thinking about. If you look in Genesis chapter 3. We learn uh, that Adam and Eve were able, before uh, Eve took of the, the fruit, the forbidden fruit, they were able to walk around naked and not ashamed. Then, when they ate of the forbidden fruit, of course, we know the story, they realized that they were naked. Um, when you look in verse 7, it tells us that the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loin coverings. Now, that word, loin coverings, according to Strong's, again, I'm just going to the dictionary, seeing what they say, it's a girdle or a belt. Uh, It's the Hebrew word shagara. And its purpose was to simply conceal what we would consider to be the private areas from our waist to the top of our thighs. Um, So what I picture, um, though I don't know that we could ever know exactly what that looked like, but but according to the definition, it sounds like it would be very similar to what a a bikini bottom might cover up. But let's continue through the narrative. Because then after that in verse 8, it says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now this is very interesting because despite the fact that they sowed these fig leaves to cover their loins, when God showed up, that covering was not enough to keep them from feeling naked. Adam said, I was naked so I hid myself. That was after they sewed loin coverings for themselves. And you know what? God agreed with him. Who told you you were naked? Do you see how it's possible to have some clothes on and to still be considered naked? So now notice what God does after he delivers all the curses to the serpent, then he delivers the curse to uh, Adam, and then to Eve. In verse 21, it then says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, this garment that we see underlined here, that's the word kethaneth. And I'm really interested in this word. I'm very interested. Because when Adam and Eve took a shot at covering their own nakedness, they failed, much like we will do today if we try to attempt to clothe ourselves and we don't look at any instruction from God, that's why we've got so much failure that's going on right now. But what we see happening here is that God is clothing Adam and Eve, and if God made this clothing, that's certainly a worthy standard to consider when I'm trying to determine clothing that pleases Him, okay? So there's the sequence, naked, loin coverings, they're still naked. Bang, garments of skin. I want to show you what all these Greek scholars say about that word garments or that Greek word kethneth. I got a plethora of these quotes that I found over time. The International Standard Bible, this is talking about the same word, that word kethneth. The International Standard Bible, and I'm going to abbreviate by just looking at the underlined ones. If you you want all these quotes to be able to look at them in their context, uh, my PowerPoint slides are available to you, but just for time's sake, I'm just going to read the main parts here. Uh, But the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, when talking about this garment, says it reaches below the knees always, and uh, sometimes at the end he says on dress occasion it reached almost to the ground. The Revel Bible Dictionary says to it fell to or below the knees. McClintock, and strong Bible cyclopedia, says it passes over the left shoulder and under the right arm, reaching from the loins to the knee. The H.W.F. Genesius, uh, Hebrew Chaldean lexicon to the Old Testament, says that covering down to the knees, rarely to the ankles. Wilson's Old Testament Word Study says to the knees, but seldom to the ankles. Handbook of Life in Bible Times by Thompson says usually, usually from shoulder to knee or ankle, The Bible almanac, there it is, the Bible almanac uh, says uh, from the waist to the knees. The UPCI book uh, said went down to the knees. The Encarta Dictionary said a knee-length garment with sleeves. Oops, a knee-length garment with sleeves. Uh, The Jewish encyclopedia, Hersch and Levi, says lengthened to the knees, especially when used by women and sometimes to the ankles. And then Thompson's Hebrew Word History, third edition, said it was a garment that reaches the knee. All right, that's a lot, right? (laughs) I mean, I'm no Greek scholar, brethren. I don't ever claim to be one. Uh, But these are people who have devoted their lives to learning the original language so that they can tell us in our language what was actually meant by these words. And all I'm suggesting by laying all these out is there is a lot of consistency in what they say. Is there not? There's a lot of consistency. Brethren, the pattern that I believe that you see in Scripture is God wants us to keep the thighs covered. I think we see that same pattern in Isaiah 47 verses 2 and 3 and I think we see that pattern in Exodus chapter 28. We're going to talk about that verse here in just a moment as it pertains to priests. Uh, But while there may be a lot of debate over this, you know, where does the thigh begin, where does it end, the direction at the very least needs to be down, to go down, not to come up and not to make shorter. If we're going to take the word for what it actually means, okay? Now, the other word I want to look at is the adjective that he uses to describe this kind of clothing. This is the word proper. That's at least how it is in the um, uh, New American Standard Version. If you're looking at the English Standard Version, it will say respectable. Uh, and both of the King James Versions uh, use the word modest. But the Greek word is the word kosmio. And it simply means seemly, well arranged, or orderly. This is where we get our English word cosmetic, or also our word cosmos. And most of the time when this Greek word is used in the Bible, it's translated as world. It's kind of interesting, right? I think the idea here, I'm going to make some speculations here, but the idea, if you look at that all together, is that just as our world has been designed in an orderly way, as defined by natural law, Christians should likewise dress in an orderly fashion as described by spiritual law. Now, this is an important concept for what is truly proper or respectable modest attire because the effectiveness of the Christian life, doesn't it largely depend on the kind of first impressions that we make? I mean, if our desire... Was to go out into our communities and to proclaim godliness in our attire. We're not going to uh, appear in shabby clothing that's unkempt or undignified. I mean, we typically don't even do business uh, with people like this, do we? I mean, so for example, um, you need some work done at your house, and you call a couple contractors to come over, and the first guy comes to quote it, and he's 30 minutes late. You know, He looks like he just woke up, smells like he's been drinking, he's ill-prepared. He needs to make a measurement, but he forgot his tape measure, so he asks if you can go down to the basement and and borrow your tape measure. Uh, And he doesn't have a clipboard to take notes, so he borrows a pencil and a scratch paper from you. But then the second guy shows up. He's on time. He's dressed respectfully. He has manner. He has all the tools he needs to give you an estimate. He gives you his car, his other information. Which one made the better first impression? I mean, all things being equal, such as price, who are you likely to trust and hire to do the job? I think that's the idea behind this word as it pertains to what Jesus wants us to think about with regard to our adornment. See, ladies, I don't think that what God is saying here is that you can't dress up and you can't look nice. And I'll be the first to admit that as I've heard a lot of lessons on this subject um, myself, I think preachers can sometimes do this um, principle a disservice by making it just solely about what is restrictive. I don't see from this word that it's solely restrictive. I think from this word he's saying that you can dress up and you can look nice and you can look respectful and orderly in order to make an impression. That seems to be what's implied uh, from this word cosmio. You can make an impression. You can look nice. Because while we're not selling people on a job, we are living epistles who are to a great extent trying to sell people on Christianity, right? And how respectfully and orderly we dress is oftentimes going to be the very first impression that we make for people before they ever hear a single Bible verse come out of our mouth. And then the third word that's used that I want to look at um, is the word modestly. Um, In the uh, the New American Standard, it's used that way. In the English Standard, it's used that way. If you've got the New King James Version, it's the word propriety. The King James Version uses the word shamefacedness. Now, virtually any Greek dictionary that you go to to look at the definition of this word is going to be the same. This is a very, very easy one to define. It's the idea of bashfulness. It's the idea of of feeling a sense of shame. Vines gives us some additional details about this word, saying that it is predominantly, excuse me, prominently objective in its reference, having regard to others, Now what that means, what he said there, having regard to others primarily objective in its reference, this means that we're less concerned about how our clothing affects us as how it might affect other people. So, for example, and I apologize for the illustration, but the subject in mind uh, is nakedness. And so it's a little bit of a delicate topic. But, you know, someone other than my wife were to walk in on me and I'm not fully clothed. Well, of course, I'm supposed to feel embarrassed by that, right? But I think the idea that Vines is suggesting from this word is that I don't just feel embarrassed myself, but I'm embarrassed for them. I'm embarrassed for them because of what they actually saw. Because the idea behind shamefastness is that it's Prospective in its meaning and that I'm actually more concerned for the people who saw me and how it affected them. And that's a a biblical concept, right? Uh, Philippians 2 verse 3 says to regard one another as more important than yourselves. And so dressing with shamefastness is the ability to blush over things that I ought to be blushing over and avoiding revealing anything that might cause someone else to blush. Um, Shamefastness. just pretty much in every area of life, isn't that one of the hardest things to teach young people, and I think especially newborn Christians? I mean, because we are living in a culture where we are just saturated with wickedness and ungodliness. And I think that ungodliness, that what it's doing out there is it's driving us toward a conformity with the world that actually desensitizes us towards sin. And I think a great example uh, to consider is what happened when the movie Gone with the Wind came out in the 1930s. Is anybody here old enough to remember when Gone with the Wind came out? Uh, Maybe or maybe not too far away. That was a long time ago, right? There's a little kid raising his hand there. I don't think you're that old, buddy, but nice try. Uh, But when Gone with the Wind came out, um, there were protests to keep this movie from premiering. Uh, Anybody know why don't speak up (laughs) on this one? Definitely. Uh, I think a lot of us know why. Because it was the first movie to have a cuss word in it. It was that phrase that Rhett Butler said at the end of a movie. Because that was an era of time when you didn't take a concept such as damnation and use that as a vain, expletive word to undermine and profane its seriousness. Now, how do I know that not just you, but me too, you and me, how do I know that we have lost our sense of shame to a great degree concerning stuff like this. I can answer it with one simple question. How many cuss words am I satisfied with hearing before I deem a movie too immoral to watch? Is it more than one, dare I say? And I'm, I, I'm speaking to my shame, brother, when I say this. I'm speaking to my shame. See, folks, being desensitized to sin, it's just not a problem with the world. Because it's a problem of the world and because we live in the world, doesn't it become our problem, too, in a lot of ways? It's a problem for us because we're living in the world. To, that, in a, lot of, to a very large degree, we've lost our ability to blush regarding many things. The world has hindered our ability to be sensitized toward things that truly are shameful. What does shamefastness have to do with the subject of modesty? It's quite simple. You cannot approach this subject saying, it doesn't bother me to wear this. I can wear this and I won't blush, therefore I am modest. You cannot approach this subject that way. You cannot deem shamefastness that way because we are living in a world that is robbing us of our shamefastness daily. Uh, another quote that I, that I heard, I actually stole this one from Wes Brown years ago, but he, he, he uh, told me about this quote, but Sharon Stone, who's another uh, Hollywood actress, apparently she appeared fully nude in some movie many years ago, go, and she declared in an interview that because she appeared nude in this movie, she felt like she could walk around Madison Square Garden fully nude in broad daylight and not feel ashamed in the least. And I'm thinking, not me, <laughs> but she says she could. Why? Because she lost her sense of shame. That's what happened to those Jews in Jeremiah 6 verse 15, wasn't it? Were they ashamed because of the abominations they had done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. Did the fact that they didn't feel ashamed for their sins justify their sin? Of course not. Just like it didn't justify Sharon Stone that she lost her ability to blush. And what I'm suggesting, brethren, is that many of us have lost our sense of shame relative to the clothes we wear. I don't just mean in here. I'm just talking about just in general. But part of the Christian walk, as we see in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, is learning the depths of God's Word to such degree uh, that we regain a heartfelt understanding of these things which are truly shameful. In other words, though the world is trying to desensitize us, the aim of God's Word is to resensitize us to sin, is it not? That's what Romans 12 and verse 2 says. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed, there's a phrase, by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Ephesians 4 verse 23 is very similar to that. It says, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. In other words, following Christ, what that means is that we think differently. Not just for the sake of being different, but because God is different. And because His thoughts, His mind, His ways are different. And they're so much higher than our own, as Isaiah 55 verse 8 and 9 says. Adam and Eve tried to cover their nakedness, but it wasn't enough, and they needed God's help. And brethren, sometimes when it comes to modest and immodest apparel, sometimes we need help too. We need God's help, His wisdom, His instruction, instead of trying to figure out this issue of modesty on our own. And that is part of the ongoing sanctification process that's incumbent of the Christian life that we're constantly learning to be sensitive towards those things that God is sensitive towards. Christians should be gravely concerned with whether or not they are promoting godliness in their attire or whether or not they are promoting shame. And then finally, the last word, and then the lesson will be yours. Um, it's the word, if you're using the New American Standard, that's discreetly. Uh, if you're in the English Standard Version, it's the word self-control. The King James Version says sobriety, and the New King James says moderation. I think this is the first of the four that has four different translations and what I would consider uh, of the better uh, Bible translation. Um, but if you look at the definition of this word um, in some of these uh, concordances and dictionaries, it simply means good judgment soundness of mind or with self-restraint and it's used again in 1st Timothy chapter 2 and verse uh, 15 when the preservation of women is conditioned upon their faith love sanctity and self-restraint now uh, there's another verse that helps us understand this uh, a little bit more fully and it's in Acts chapter 26 and verse 25 remember in Acts 26 uh, Paul's response to Felix when Felix told Paul hey you're out of your mind with all this teaching we remember that verse right Remember Paul's response in Acts 26, 25? Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. That word sober that I got underlined there, same word. Part of using good judgment in modesty, modest apparel, involves making sure that we're covered from all angles. That would mean whether we're standing, whether we're sitting, whether we're leaning, or whether we're bending. Uh, remember in Acts chapter 20 and verse uh, 26, and then we'll look at Exodus 28. I think I said Acts. I meant Exodus 20:26, 20, and then we'll look in Exodus 28 verse 42. God gives some instructions pertaining to the priests and their attire. He says first in Exodus 20 verse 26 that, that they're not to go up by steps to my altar so that your nakedness will not be exposed. But then he gives them a, a way to prevent that in Exodus 28, verse 42, when he says, You shall make for them linen breeches to cover their bare flesh. They shall reach from the loins even to the thighs. Uh, now, that, the thighs that's being talked about there, some people say, well, there you go, to the thighs, to the top of the thighs. No, that's inclusive, and I, and I could go further on that if we need to. But what he's talking about here in Exodus 28, verse 42, is actually an undergarment. Uh, The priests actually wore an outer garment uh, that actually went all the way down to the feet. But even with that outer garment, if you did not have these loin coverings that went down to the thighs, the idea is if you're walking up steps, even though you have that long garment on, if somebody's standing below you, they could still see you and your nakedness could still be exposed. That's the idea that's being presented here. And so I think when we're talking about self-control, when we're talking about being discreet, ladies... Part of the good judgment and sobriety that comes with your dress is recognizing that that some angles are modest and some are not, right? I mean we understand that. Some, your shirt may adequately cover parts of, of your body that they need to, but if you bend down or bend over, what will they do then? Your skirt may come past the knees when you're standing. What's it doing when you're sitting? I mean, these are always things that we need to think about because it's indicative of good judgment. It's indicative of being discreet. It's indicative of sobriety. I'm thinking about what I'm wearing. I'm thinking about the things that I'm going to be doing while, while I'm wearing it. And I want to tell you something else. And this is becoming more common that, in my estimation, is not only not soundest of mind, but I'm just going to be blunt with you, brother. This, this is insanity to me, okay? Let me, let me tell you what's insanity to me. It used to be that those who disagreed over this subject, and they'd go to the beach and they're going to wear their fancy underwear anyway and brethren wouldn't really know about it. That used to be how things used to be. And by the way, two-piece bathing suits like bikinis, skin-tight one-piece bathing suits that reveal the curvature of the female form that leads little to the imagination, it's no different than underwear. It's fancy underwear. But some would never prance around town wearing underwear have convinced themselves that if you go to a place where there's water and everybody else is doing it, that God no longer cares about modesty. I I don't understand that logic. That's not sober thinking. That's being drunk on conformity. But here's what's happening today that I really do think borders on insanity. What happens on the beach is not staying on the beach anymore, is it? Where is it coming to? It's coming to social media, right? Adam and Eve... Hid their loin coverings and their loin coverings, but some are proudly posting their loin coverings on Facebook, on, on Instagram, and Snapchat for all the world to see, without seemingly any hesitation whatsoever. And brethren, there is nothing discreet about that. And you won't know what else is not discreet. It's when some Christians who would never dress that way, when they click that like button rather that's just wrong I mean that's giving approval to sin I mean, we don't need to be clicking the light button what we need to be doing is is private messaging these folks and I think even more than that is we need to be pulling them aside and we need to be talking to them and studying with them about this subject uh, here's what we try to instill in our young ladies in Auburn uh, you know well I try to tell these young ladies and Jennifer and I sit down with a lot of them and talk about about this subject is I try to tell them young ladies There are mothers here at this church that you attend who are trying really hard to teach their little girls how a daughter of the king is supposed to dress. And I tell them that when you brazenly post your nakedness on social media or show up to assembly, exposing parts of your body that you should not, it sends these young girls who look up to you mixed messages. And it makes the job of the mothers who are trying to train their daughters that much more difficult. And also try to tell these young ladies that there are also fathers who are trying to teach their young ones very hard to control their lusts, which can be very difficult when puberty hits. But they're your friends on social media. And there's been a couple girls that, that have posted some horrible things on social media that we will just pull it up. And, and it's amazing that when we pull it up, with Jennifer and I sitting there. I always make sure my wife's there, by the way. <laughs> Sober-mindedness, right? You know, but, but we'll pull it up there. It's amazing how embarrassed they get when we pull it up. And I'm thinking, why are you embarrassed now? You put this all over Instagram, but why are you embarrassed now? Isn't that telling you that maybe you shouldn't have posted this to begin with? But, but I try to tell these guys. I, I, I pulled it up before and I said, look at these young men that you're friends with on here. Look at these young boys that you go to church with. And look at how they see you now. Look at the opportunities that you give for them to objectify you because of the bathing suits that you're wearing that you should not be wearing. There are fathers that are trying, fighting hard to help their children with this. Fathers trying to teach their sons to respect women, to love them for the right reasons, but these immodest pictures cause them to look at them for all the wrong reasons. Wives who work really hard to help their husbands, as 1 Corinthians 7 teaches, to keep their passions in check. And to prevent them from desiring someone who doesn't belong to them. And it wakes wives jobs difficult when they're having to compete with you for their husband's affections if you're dressing in a sexually suggestive, suggestive way. And I try to instill that in some of these young ladies that you would be surprised to learn just how many of your Christian brothers struggle and continue to struggle with lust and pornography and part of what they need in their fight, not everything, they, they need to be men, by the way, and we're going to talk about that tomorrow, okay? I'm not pinning this all on women. I, please don't say that I am. I'm not. Men got to be men and stand up and have some self-control. But I'm telling you, what one thing that women that men need in their fight against all this is they need godly women whose dress reflects their prior confession in Christ. They need to see that. And so my encouragement to them, as is, is it'll be to you, is, is let's think soberly about what we're putting out there. Be discreet. Show self-control. Every time that we get dressed, men and women both, we need to be asking, is what I'm wearing others sending a message that I am godly, or is it sending a message, subtle or otherwise, of sensuality and sexuality? And if you're ever undecided about an article of clothing, you've probably already answered your question. I just want to leave you with one final admonition, and the lesson is yours. Uh, Christian ladies, you are the daughter of the cosmic king of kings. So you walk like it, you talk like it, dress like it, and wait for the godly man who treats you like it. Because what attracts a man's attention doesn't always attract his respect. And what turns a man's head doesn't always turn his heart. I appreciate you listening to this, and I hope it was helpful. Um, I hope it gets us thinking a little bit more clearly. Certainly, I'm not opposed to having this uh, conversation uh, uh, further with anybody who might have anything to add, disagreements, comments, or suggestions on anything. It's an important subject, though, brethren. We need to be talking about it, and I appreciate you so much for uh, being patient uh, through this. Uh, And if there's anybody here tonight, of course, who... Uh, has not obeyed the gospel, certainly we want to Im- offer an invitation at this time that if you believe that Jesus Christ is Son of God and you're willing to repent of your sins and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, don't hesitate. Come forward. Let us baptize you tonight so that you can have your sins washed away. And if you are a Christian and whether it's this subject tonight or something that was prayed about or something that was sung about has maybe stung your conscience a little bit and you're thinking that you need to make a confession or if you just need help and need the prayers of the saints, we want to be here for you in that regard as well. You just come forward and you let it be known what you need help with while we stand and while we sing this invitation song.